Thanks, brother. It's good to have Aaron back uh, as he's been gone and uh, grateful for you being here this morning and for your family to keep praying and being with you in it. Well, I'm glad everybody's here this morning. My name is Daniel, uh, as uh, Aaron and uh, just prayed for. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, we're really glad you're here. Uh, realize all of you could be doing many other things this morning, but you've chosen to be with us, and so we're glad uh, for your presence here. Uh, over the last two to three weeks, the, the annual debate has been raging. You know the debate that I'm talking about? Can you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, or do you need to wait till after Thanksgiving to listen to Christmas music? I know there are people here that as soon as November 1 hits, Christmas music's playing. Others of you, you got to get through Thanksgiving before you can even start playing Christmas music. And so the question, the debate, is when do you start preparing for Christmas? Right? When do you turn on the Christmas carols? When do you pull out the decorations for your house? When do you start shopping for presents? When do you start preparing for Christmas? Next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. It's a season in the historical Christian calendar. Perhaps the Christian calendar is a new thing for you, but it's a historical practice that the church has used to tell time, to tell days and months through the lens of the gospel story of Jesus Christ. Advent is a season of preparation, preparing to celebrate the coming of the Messiah King Jesus, who invaded our world in the form of a baby. And so as we prepare, we wait in hope we anticipate, we have hopeful expectations of what Christmas brings, what the coming of Jesus brings. Uh, this morning, I want to set us up to enter Advent next Sunday, this season of preparation and getting ready to really celebrate Christmas by looking at a somewhat strange figure. It's a biblical figure that is probably nowhere on any of your Advent calendars, if you've ever used an Advent calendar. It's a figure that's probably not on any of your children's Advent calendars. If you've ever used that, you know, those calendars where you open the door every new day of the season. It's a figure that we really don't know exactly what to do with. He doesn't fit into our times. He didn't really fit into his own times. But I believe he shows us the way to prepare for Christmas. And so if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to give attention to God's word in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. This is God's word to us this morning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we bow in our hearts, we bow uh, in our spirits to ask that you would speak to us 
that we'd be in a posture of receiving, to hear from you, to be changed by you. And I do pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, into our spirits, that we would have our minds illumined and our hearts softened and our lives changed because you've spoken to us. I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. The Yugoslavian wars waged from 1991 to 1997, six long years of warring. And all the radio stations in Belgrade, Serbia, were controlled by the corrupt Milosevic government, except one station, and that one station was being jammed. So the only way that protesting Serbs could get any news of their own movement during the war was by listening to this one station. According to Chris Hedges, who was a war correspondent reporting in Belgrade, Serbia, one Serbian told him that the only way that they could pick up the radio station was by standing in the water in a bathtub, holding the antenna, and he would tell his whole family to come in and listen as they tuned in. In Belgrade today, members of the media are heroes. One of them is a blind disc jockey who has a very strong following, and he opens up his segment every time by saying, good evening, zombies. Good evening, zombie town. Is there life out there? Do you cower in fear and anger? Be alive be alive. Now, this disc jockey may not know it, but this is the Advent message, where there are voices in the darkness speaking out for life, where there there are voices speaking out for hope. There lies Advent watchmen and Advent watchwomen. And John the Baptist is the premier Advent watchman. To understand John the Baptist, we need to understand the last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Listen to Malachi 4, it says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. After these words in Malachi, there would be 400 years of silence from God towards his people as a result of their own rebellion. 400 years years of radio silence from God, no voice, no presence, just darkness, fear, anger, confusion. And then Mark chapter one happens. John the Baptist, the new Elijah, stands on the edge of the universe to give voice where there was no voice, to give light where there was no light, to give hope where there was no hope, and to proclaim the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. This Advent watchman shows us how to prepare for Christmas, how to prepare for the coming of the Lord. We're going to look at three things. We prepare by making room, we prepare by standing on the frontier, and we prepare by receiving the message. Let's look first at making room. John the baptizer, uh, known as John the Baptist, but we've got to know he's not a denominational Baptist, right? He was baptizing people. Uh, He was John the baptizer. And he steps on stage after 400 years of silence. And and this man is crunchy and granola before crunchy and granola became cool, right? I mean, look at him. He's wearing camel's hair, a leather belt, eating locust and honey. He's all natural before natural was in, right? He's the new Elijah. 
He's the forerunner of the coming of the Lord. He is the one who in verse 3, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says, prepares the way of the Lord. That there would be no good news, no gospel of Jesus Christ without John the Baptist. And he would spend his whole life with one purpose, to announce and to declare the coming of the Messiah King. John the Baptist was single-minded in purpose, even unto his death, where he wouldn't shrink from fear and, uh, from Herod or inherit from Herod's wife, where his life would end with his head on a platter, but his whole life would be spent constantly pointing people to Jesus Christ. In verse 7, he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, whose straps of sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. John Calvin called John the Baptist the lantern which shone in front of the Son of God. His whole life was to witness to Jesus was pointing away from himself to the Messiah King. And John the Baptist's proclamation reveals how we might follow in this way of pointing away from ourselves and pointing to Jesus, how we might prepare ourselves for Jesus' coming. Look at verse 4. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Repentance is the way we make room for the Messiah King to take up residence in our lives. Repentance is listening to the call of be alive, wake up from your spiritual hardness and your spiritual slumber caused by your own personal sin and rebellion. Confess all the ways that we've tried to fill our lives and live apart from God. Repentance is turning away from our old ways, our selfish ways, to be reoriented to a new way. Repentance is the emptying of ourselves by the confession of our selfish ways so that we can make room for Jesus and Jesus' life to fill us. There's an old story about a woman who taught a class of deaf students. And one day she was teaching them about the names of various feelings that we as humans are capable of having. And since these students couldn't speak, each of them had a small tablet on which they would write their answers. And she asked them, which is the most delightful emotion? The class put their heads down and began to busily scratch their words on the tablets, and one student wrote joy, another hope, another gratitude, still another love. But one young girl in the back of the room had written a word that the teacher could barely make out. And upon closer examination, she realized that the girl wrote repentance. And the teacher was surprised to see this answer and asked her why she thought this was so. And the little girl in broken sign language said, it is delightful to be humbled before God. It is delightful to be humbled before God. I share this story because I know delightful is hardly the word that comes to many of your minds when you hear this word repentance. This word in most of our vocabularies involves pain and misery, sackcloth and ashes. Most people, including many Christians, see repentance basically as a negative ex exercise and experience. The world can look and see repentant Christians and, see, and say morbid Christians, so self-absorbed, they only want to be sad all the time. But true biblical repentance is far from drudgery and oppression. True repentance is the release of the things that oppress. It is the emptying of ourselves by confessing all the things that we have thought could provide life but have failed to do so. 
Confessing all the things that we've trusted in for our meaning, but have not lived up to its promises. Confessing all the places we've looked to for belonging, but have remained lonely. Confessing all the things we thought would give us freedom, but have only kept us in chains. It's in this humbling act of confessing that we make room for Jesus and for Jesus' love and life to fill us up. Repentance is delightful because in it we prepare room for Jesus to fill us with his life, his love, his joy, his peace. John the Baptist gives us the litmus test to see if repentance is our lifestyle. And it's our people pointed to you or Jesus as they hear you speak and see you live. Because a repentant life makes room for Jesus and therefore makes much of Jesus. An unrepentant life, no matter how Christian you might think you are living, is filled with the self and it makes much of self. So John the Baptist is the model for every Christian preacher for sure, but also the model for every Christian to shine light and always point to Christ. The second way we prepare for Christmas is by standing on the frontier. Locating John here gives us insight to Advent. He is in the wilderness. And the wilderness was the place and time in the Old Testament where the people of God trusted God to lead them as sons and daughters of God out of darkness and death into God's light and life. See, Israel was released from bondage in Egypt and they would journey through the wilderness and they would stand on the edges of the Jordan River looking into the promised land with great expectation and great hope. And John the Baptist now stands on the edges of the Jordan River in the wilderness, located in the place of darkness to proclaim hope in God who is about to reverse and undo all that sin has impacted. See, Advent is a time for us to wake up it's a time to prepare him room through our repentance, and it's a time for us to hope with expectancy that the invading Son of God is bringing a kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. In June, there was a New York Times article titled, With Hymns and Prayers, Christians Help Drive Protest. It's an article about Christians in Hong Kong seeking justice and peace in the midst of this present turmoil. And for the past six months, many Christians have been standing on the frontier in Hong Kong, trying to bring peace between the Chinese government and its people. These are Advent people. The eight Iranians who converted to Christianity from Islam and are standing firm in their faith in Christ and recently taken into custody, placed in solitary confinement, and just now sentenced to execution. These eight Iranians are Advent people. People who are standing in places of darkness and brokenness and proclaiming hope. And on the Jordan River in the wilderness, John announces the kingdom of God is at hand. That in the coming of the Messiah King, God is going to turn the world upside down. It is the dawn of a new world order, the turning of the ages. No longer are we marked by despair and darkness, but the people of God are now marked by hope. To see if we're living with hope in this Advent season, we've got to locate ourselves in our world. Now, we're not living in Hong Kong. And no one in here that I know of, know of is being threatened with execution for their faith in Jesus. But are you living on the frontier? And are you proclaiming hope in this coming kingdom of God? Here's what it could look like. 
It looks like a businessman who refuses to go along with corrupt policies that would benefit him financially. It looks like a woman who decides to not leave her marriage in spite of a strong desire to be happier with someone else. It looks like a college student who's willing to speak up in class about their faith in Jesus when ridicule is guaranteed. It looks like a social worker or a teacher who remains in their job content with lower salary when they could earn higher salary somewhere else. It looks like a parent drawing healthy boundaries for their children and insisting on limits when it makes their children angry. It looks like someone who has a strong sexual drive but resists and remains celibate and faithful to God when the world tells them that they're crazy and should be free to do what they desire. It looks like a parent who fosters a child even though it means disruption in their life and disruption to their current family dynamic. It looks like heralding and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in word with those God has placed around you. Where are you located? And are you living in such a way that you're proclaiming hope in a kingdom that is coming? Do your words and does your life announce that Jesus is reversing the broken ways of our world? John announced this at the price of his own life. Will you hold your location in spite of personal loss? Look at the third way we prepare for Christmas in verses 9 to 10. It's by receiving the message. In verses 9 to 10, Jesus comes to be baptized by John, and when he comes up out of the water, immediately the heavens are torn open and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. If we were to read the first 10 chapters of our Bibles, we would see two really important places where the Spirit of God is present. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, the Spirit of God hovers and God says, let there be light, and God creates the world. And then in Genesis chapter 8, at the flooding of the earth, Noah sends forth the dove. The dove bring back, brings back an olive leaf to show that the flood is over and that a new day has dawned. The Spirit descending on Jesus at this baptism, it is the proclamation of a new day, a new creation, the great reversal of the downward spiral that sin has been causing upon the world, that the old is going away, and Jesus is bringing forth a new day. And a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, which is a reference to Psalm 2, verse 7. To be the son was to be the representative for all the people. So Jesus Christ, the perfect son, in whom the father delights, is the great representative for all who trust in him. Which means that the way the father delights in Jesus is the way he delights in us. The voice of the Father shouts over us, you are my beloved. And I'm convinced more and more in my own life, there's nothing I need more. And the more I get to know many of you in our congregation and people in our city, I think there's nothing that's needed more than for all of us to really hear and listen and believe deep down the voice of the Heavenly Father saying, you are my beloved. Maybe you grew up in a home where you only heard your father or mother say they loved you when you demonstrated your worthiness by performing well. Maybe you grew up with voices of friends teasing you about your weight, about your athletic ability, about the way you talk. You see what happens when all of us grow up with these voices around us, we begin to believe the voices. And Henry Nouwen said that the greatest trap in life is not the trap of success, 
or the trap of popularity or the trap of power, but the trap of self-rejection. And self-rejection is what fuels the majority of people who are perfectionistic, ambitious, and driven. It is a longing to prove to others we are lovable because deep down, if we're really honest, we believe we're not. And in the triangle and in our church, we have gifted, driven, ambitious, and talented people. And what drives many is this fuel to to prove oneself and to to show others that we're worth loving. So the power of self-rejection, it's a strong trap. You got to catch this, that it is revealed through arrogance or low self-esteem. See, arrogance is, I've got to prove myself, to myself and to the world, I am great. You, know, you, can, you can feel arrogance. Low self-esteem says I'm unworthy and I'm unlovable, which, by the way, can masquerade in the church as humility. But it's not true humility. It's low self-esteem. And arrogance and low self-esteem are the two sides of the same coin of self-rejection. A friend of mine recently told me about an interaction with his daughter his daughter came up to him and said, Daddy, is I pretty? He looked straight into his daughter in his eyes and he said, Honey, you're beautiful. And every single one of us deep down is asking, Am I lovable? And we need to hear the voice of the Father saying, You are my beloved. I love you. Puritan Thomas Watson tells the story of walking behind a father and a son, and the father picked up the son, hugged him, and said, I love you, son. And the son, while in his father's arms, said, I love you too, Dad. And Watson said, well, was the son at the moment he was in his dad's arms legally any more his son than when he was on the ground? No. But was the son experientially more his son when in his father's arms? Yes. The job of the Holy Spirit is to make what is legally true of us an experiential reality. That's what we all need is the Holy Spirit to come down on us and allow us to receive this message of Advent that in the coming of Jesus, we are made the beloved of God because the beloved son trusted perfectly the leading of his father into the wilderness and the perfect son, our representative was crushed for our sin. He was made ugly, despised, spit upon, told he was worthless was mocked and people yelled at him, save yourself if you're the son of God. Show us you're worthy of our praise. He willingly gave his life so that he could reverse the downward spiral caused by sin so that he could usher in a new world order that the kingdom of God would come to earth as it is in heaven. He did this so that we could hear the voice of the father declare, you're my beloved so that we could believe that the voice of the Father is more true than the voices we've believed our whole lives, that we really are lovable and loved. So are you ready for Christmas? It's not the person who's spending thousands of dollars buying Christmas presents or the person who's running around frantically stressing out over this season or the person who's socially exhausted by all the parties or the person who's decorating their house to make it Instagram worthy who is ready. The person who is ready for Christmas is the person who spends time listening to the voice of the Father say, you are beloved. And it's the person who lives on the frontier, proclaiming hope in the midst of the wilderness journey. 
And so we prepare for Christmas, Christ Central, by praying, by being silent, by looking at beauty, by reading God's word. These are ways that the voice of the Father becomes louder than the voices we tend to listen to that lead us to self-rejection. And we also prepare for Christmas by living on the frontier, proclaiming in our words and in our deeds that we have hope in the coming kingdom of God. Contemplation and mission, two practical applications that prepare us for Christmas, that make us Advent watchmen and Advent watchwomen. So in this Christmas season, this Advent season, I pray that we're not marked by hurry or by our spending or by our decorating, but by our repentance, which makes room for Jesus to fill us, by the way we stand on the frontier proclaiming hope in a dark and broken world, and by receiving the message, resting and trusting and being the beloved of God. It's in this way that we become like this strange character, John the Baptist, where we live single-minded to be a lantern shining on the Son of God, the Messiah King who is coming and has already come. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would make room Oh, Lord, may we be led to delight in the emptying of ourselves by confession. May you fill us with your love and grace. May we hear your voice delighting over us. May we know that we are declared sons and daughters because of what Christ has done. May this, this voice, Heavenly Father, be louder and truer and believed more deeply than any voice that we whisper to ourselves or voices we've grown up hearing or that the world tells to us. And therefore, may we be people who live on the frontier, proclaiming the same love and grace and mercy, the, the hope that we have because of what Christ is doing in us and through us. Lord, thank you that you've been with us. Continue to bless this table as we come to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.